Good morning, everybody. It's great. This is the Crosspoint worship team coming out to serve us this morning. I'm so grateful for um, the way that they are so eagerly desired to bless us and show up and practice and play and really lead us um, just in a song of praise to the Lord. So, guys and girls, thank you so much. We appreciate it. We are blessed. All right, if you would turn with me to Psalm 108. Okay, we need to distribute our workbooks for the next couple of weeks. So if you're new here, we are in a series on the Psalms, and we are in week number five. And so these workbooks are daily devotionals for you to help you dig deeper into the the verses that we talk about on Sunday morning. And so we can have a um, couple of the ushers pass those out right now. That would be great if... uh, Joe, if you if you do that, and maybe um, someone else could just jump up real quick, pass those out. Everyone gets one. Um, these will serve you. They're written by uh, the pastors amongst the LifeLink churches in, in the area, Crosspoint, ourselves, and Living Word. So um, please, please do use these. These will help you and serve you in digging in your walk with the Lord. Okay. So like I said, we're in a series on the Psalms. We're, we're, we're doing this with Crosspoint and Living Word as well. That means that at the other churches, we're also preaching about Psalm uh, 108 today. And then at the end of this whole series, in week number 10, we'll be getting together for a massive joint service together at Villa Cesar, which promises to be just a phenomenal time together. We love doing that. Um, so... We are excited about that as well. Just so you know, I'm going to give you a brief synopsis of what the next couple of weeks will look like for us here at Mercy Hill. I'm speaking at Psalm 108 this week. Next week, Ian Raleigh from England is coming in. He'll be sharing the Word of God with us. We love English people over here. We can't get enough of them. So we just keep inviting them to keep coming back. Come on, English people. We just can listen to that accent all day long. So Ian will be here next week. Then my brother Dave will be here the week after that. And then Todd Casenza will be here the week after that. The week after that, I'll be preaching. And then the week after that, we have the joint service. I know, I know you did not remember any of that, so that's okay. You just know that I'll be here, but I won't be necessarily preaching on the next couple of weeks. Some of you are like, oh, great, <laughs> excellent. No. Um, so let's turn to Psalm 108. I want to just say a couple things about this psalm. And I see... Um, Rob Feeman here. Hi, Rob. It's good that you're here. Rob has a talent. He can uh, freestyle rap. So if, Rob, if you are able to put together a freestyle rap about my sermon after uh, we're done, maybe we can close with a little freestyle. Would you guys like that? Okay, so maybe we'll get some freestyle after the sermon today, okay? All right, so Psalm 108. If you've read through the Psalms, starting in Psalm 1, reading all the way to Psalm 150, you'll get to Psalm 108 and you'll realize that you've read some of the Psalm before. It looks familiar. It's because you have. Psalm 108 is a compilation of two different Psalms, kind of chopped in half and put together. It's like a song mashup, okay? And so what Psalm 108 is, is part of Psalm 57 and part of Psalm 60, combined. Okay. And here's why I believe they did this. Psalm 57 is a Psalm of David 
while he's in a cave being hunted down by Saul, the king at the time. And so Psalm 57 is a very individualistic psalm where it's David's heart communicating to God the things that are going on in his life at that time. However, when we get to Psalm 108, what they've done is they've said, look, we love Psalm 57, we love Psalm 60. However, there's a community cry that we have that, that, that is in line with what David was praying in Psalm 57. There's a community out cry, a community outpouring amongst us that we can relate to what David's saying because what he was experiencing is, is now the experience that we have as a community of believers, as a community of God. And so they've taken it and said, look, we're going to make this for us. So this is good because this is a corporate psalm. This was meant for the corporate application and corporate gatherings that they had where we come together. And so this is good for us. We will read Psalm 108 and then we're going to pray and we'll dig in. Psalm 108. I will sing. My heart is steadfast, O God. And I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake. O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. And I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens, and your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth that your beloved ones may be delivered and give salvation by your right hand and answer me. God has promised in his holiness with exaltation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go out, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe. For vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to gather together and worship and call upon your name and look and dig into your word. And we ask this morning that you would help us. Give us the faith to receive this word. Open our eyes and unplug our ears. Help us to remove distractions. And God, let us give you the attention and worship that you deserve. And so, Lord, we ask this morning, God, speak to us. Let your word come alive to us. And Lord, I pray that you would help my own heart. Lord, help me to be able to worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to start by looking at verses 1 through 5. And verses 1 through 5, I believe, are, are a response to what the psalmist sees in verse 4. So verses 1 through 5, 
show us an appropriate response to God. When we think about who God is and what God has done, what God is like, what's an appropriate way that we respond back to God in worship? And I believe in this we see four things that describe a kind of worship that isn't just individual. Now, we sang the song before we, before we uh, the last song we sang was, I offer all of you, all, all of myself to you, O Lord. And so there's a sense in which worship is us offering ourselves back to God again in any way that he sees fit. It's a day-to-day. We worship God daily. It's obedience to God that we, that we live our lives before God and we say, God, this is our worship. What's, what's talked about in Romans 12, verse 1. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual act of worship. However, in this psalm, what we're looking at is a corporate gathering. What's an appropriate way that we corporately worship God as a body, as a church? And so I believe there's four things for us to kind of dig into, to look at and say, what does this mean? And so I've kind of given it an acronym. I've called this, this is our epic worship. So our worship needs to be epic, okay? So let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 says this, I will sing and make melody with all my being. Number one, worship is exuberant. It's exuberant. And we often get so excited about things that are passing away instead of the things that are eternal. I remember when I went to a Cubs and Sox game at Wrigley Field. And it was, it was like, it felt like you were going to like a playoff game or something. Just, there was a buzz in the atmosphere. It was like, oh man, I can't, can't wait to see the game. Well, lo and behold, we're in the seventh inning. The Cubs are down by a couple of runs and they're going to change pitchers out. So they're going to change pitchers. Michelle's like, hey, I'm going to go run the bathroom real quick. So she runs to the bathroom. Well, of course the line's huge and she didn't have time, enough time to get back for when the game's going to start again. So the game begins to start. Pitchers change out. Well, lo and behold, Derek Lee was hurt at the time, but Derek Lee did come to the plate to pinch hit for the guy. Bases loaded. The dude hits a grand slam, a pinch hit grand slam against the White Sox to put the Cubs up. Man, the place went nuts. I mean, it would just was like... Man, I felt like the place was going to cave in on itself. I mean, it was going to do that anyways. But we really felt like, man, this is unbelievable. I can't believe how awesome this is. What a, what a moment of just uh, excitement and celebration. And, and Michelle missed it all. She comes out, oh, I, I can't believe, what you, honey, you just missed, like, the greatest sports event I've seen in real life that's ever happened. But here's the thing. Baseball's passing away. Baseball, sports, all these other things, they're passing away. As great as they are, and I, I love watching sports, and, and as, as, as good as it is, it has its right place, but you need to keep in mind, these things are passing away. And so often we can get so worked up and so excited about the temporal. Most of you guys don't even remember that happened. In a couple of years, I probably won't even remember that happened. But here's the thing, we need, and the psalmist begins to talk about making, singing and making melody with all his being. He's saying, man, I am fixing on what is eternal. I am giving myself to the eternal praise of God that does not pass away. 
And so often I can sit here in a worship service and I can just kind of check out, phase out, think about, okay, what do we got to do after church? What do we do for lunch? Because I'm really getting hungry and hope hope I can get done preaching quick so I can go home and eat. And, and you know, there's like a million things that come cr- crowding into my mind where I just kind of just sit back and, hey, I like the music. But I'm not worshiping with all my being. I believe an appropriate response to God. And we're going to see what he's responding to. But appropriate response of worship to God is with our whole being. Whole being. Number two. So we see, number one, it's exuberant. But number two, it's a proclamation. It's a proclamation. Okay, look what he says in verses one through three. Sing, awaken the dawn, give thanks among the peoples. He's saying this is not something I just do on my own, by myself, in my prayer closet. Oh, that's fine. Say, man, when we come together, there is a proclamation of who God is. And the times that I've been with together in in a singing and I'll be sitting next to somebody and they're just belting this, this song out and they are worshiping God with all their hearts. Man, it does something to me. I'm affected by it. I'm affected by this person's proclamation of worship. There's a, like a ministry that happens as we worship God to one another. And we don't even realize you could be the worst singer in the world. It doesn't matter. There's, there's a proclamation. There's an aspect of proclamation of the worship of God that is acceptable and appropriate. You know what? It's hard to keep quiet about the God that you love. Think about the things that you, you, you begin to tell people about. You know, when I, when I think about my wife, Michelle, and just the way that she is just so gifted in everything, photography, raising children, doing homeschool, taking care of me, um, taking care of our home. I mean, just the list goes on. I can't help but, but tell people about that. It's not something I just keep quiet to myself. There's a proclamation in that. It says, look, I want to tell you about something that's just amazing to me. My wife, she's amazing. But it's a way in which we honor God by the way we proclaim his praises in, in church, in a corporate setting. It's a way in which we honor God with our lives. Okay, so not only is it exuberant, not only is it a proclamation, but number three, it's intentional. This is intentional. Look, I will sing. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks. I will sing praise. There's this, I will, I will, I will, I will. He's being intentional about his praise. He doesn't just stumble on to praise somehow or just kind of happens. There's an intentionality about his praise that I believe is appropriate for us as God's people. I will, I will, I will. And we prepare for what's important to us, don't we? Look, if we're going to go on vacation, now some of you may just look, kind of like roll out of bed the day of vacation and say, yeah, how are we going to get there and what are we going to wear? But most people, if it's important to them, have been thinking and planning and preparing for this vacation, Right? or even a birthday, or even a sports event. I mean, we want to get there early. We want to get the good seats. We want to, we've been thinking about this. How are we going to, what roads are we going to take? To, I mean, all this stuff goes into planning and preparing because it's important to us. 
And for the psalmist, I believe it's also this, this being prepared, this, this intentionally as he comes and approaches God. And so for us, if it's not, is this a priority to, is worship a priority to us? I mean, I think about my own life. And when I say this, I'm not just, yeah, you guys need to get things straightened out. I'm not saying that. Guys, look, this has been the story of my life. There's been more times I've grown up in church. There's been more times that I've come to church without any intention at all about thinking ahead, about worshiping God, preparing my heart, trying, desiring to minister, any of those things. It's been about me. And you know what? And you've heard me say this, and I, I'm going to keep saying this, but Sunday morning starts on Saturday night. Sunday morning starts on Saturday night. Look, if we're up late, rolling out of bed at the last minute, trying to, to drag our feet into church, and man, I'm going to worship God for the next 30 minutes, and yeah, I hope I can stay awake for this thing. And Guys, there's an intentionality about this, that if this is important to us, and listen, if this is not important to you, take stock of your life right now. Consider your ways. Is this important to you? Is this, has this been the pattern of your worship so far? Guys, and if it's not, by the grace of God, ask, repent, seek his mercy and his forgiveness, and ask God the grace to change. Ask God for the grace to change. He's made himself available to us. So we're able now to come to God and say, God, this has not been my appropriate response. God is there for us. So not only is it exuberant, not only is it a proclamation, not only is it intentional, but it's also corporate. It's also corporate. It's not private, but together we worship God. And there are times when we have a private devotion to the Lord. We get on our hands and knees before we go to bed or we get up in the morning or during the day or whenever it is, there's a sense in which we come to the Lord individually. But there's also times like right now when we come together corporately to call upon the Lord. And not only does it, I believe, honor God, but it unifies God's people. And I think that in itself is a testimony to what God is doing in our midst. When the world looks in and sees that there are people from different demographics, different upbringings, different life experiences who all come together and are unified in worship of the Lord that cannot be denied that the work of God is in our midst and He is doing something in our church that cannot be denied by the world. I believe it, it, it honors God. Okay, so... I believe those are appropriate responses. Those aren't the only responses to God, but I believe in this psalm, those are appropriate responses to God. So what are we responding to? Okay, so he starts off with how he responds, but then in verse, verses 4 and 5, he begins to describe what it is that he is responding to with this epic worship, okay? Verses 4 and 5, and I'll start with verse 4. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens and your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. So there's this break where he says, look, this is what this worship is about. This is what I am responding to. God's steadfast love and faithfulness. And for the psalmist, you know what? It was seen in, in the way in which 
God has brought his word to his people and revealed himself to his people. And they saw it, I believe, in a way that was, was in part. But now in Jesus Christ, we see God's revelation fully in the person of Christ. And so for us, for the psalmist, he's looking forward to the redemption they have. But we look back and say it's because of Jesus. It's the full revelation of God to us. Jesus in John 15 said this, Greater love has no one than this. Greater love has no one than this. That he lay down his life for his friends. When we talk about God's steadfast love and faithfulness, I believe it's most clearly seen in Jesus on the cross of Calvary. That is where we most clearly see God's steadfast love and faithfulness to his people. And this is what it means. It means that we have a sin problem, each one of us. From the very beginning, we hit the ground running as sinners. We hit the ground running sinning, don't we? When you look at a child, if you, those of you who have kids or those of you who have ever babysat for anybody or have been around some nieces and nephews, and you're like, man, these kids are terrors. These kids are unbelievable. I mean, it's the way that they're so selfish and, and angry and demand their own way and, and, and so just mean to each other. No one had to teach them that. No one sat down with their kid and said, look, son, I want to teach you how to be selfish because you need to know these things as you grow up. You need to know how to be mean. You know how to demand your way. No one teaches kids those things. We have to teach them to be nice, be thoughtful, be kind. We don't have to teach them to do those other things. That comes naturally. And you know what? That's still, in, that's still in us today. We just have better ways of masking it, don't we? Nothing, nothing really has changed if you think about it. I want my own way. I want it now. But we've got a sin problem. And if we want to know how serious God looks at this sin problem, if we want to know how serious and what God thinks of sin... We need to look at the depth of the solution that God gave for our sin. He gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. That is how serious of a sin problem that each one of us has. We've not only have broken God's law, we've conti- we continue to break God's law. And so God says the penalty for that rebellion, the penalty for that disobedience to God is, is death is separation from God, eternal separation from God. It's death. And therefore, we understand that we don't deserve heaven, we deserve hell. But that's why Jesus came. Jesus came as a perfect, sinless sacrifice for us. That he lived the perfect life of obedience in our place and died on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven and restored and redeemed and brought to new life again. And he says, look, this is, a, this is an offer of salvation to you today, today, that when we put our faith in believing that Jesus Christ died for my sin, for our sins, that he says something happens. He says, you're adopted into the family of God and your sins are remembered no more and you're come wiped clean. And from now on, as adopted into God's family, you are in Christ Jesus. And when God looks upon us, as sinful as we are, he says, I don't see all that other stuff that you've done, all that stuff you're going to do. 
What I see is Christ. And now you're welcomed into the family. That's why that's why we love adoption. Ryan and Jasmine have officially ruled by the courts of Nicaragua. They've adopted the three boys. It's fully legal. They're their kids in the family. They're the Heath boys now. And so we, 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 we thank the Lord for that. But it should be for us a reminder of what God has done for each one of us. That one time we were orphans without hope. And by his grace and mercy, he has brought us into his family and filled us with his spirit and wiped away our tears and given us his very self and the hope of heaven. And when we see those boys, when, when these boys are in this church a couple of weeks from now, man, we should see that thing. Thank you, God, because that is what you've done for me. And that should fuel worship for us. When we consider what God has done, when we think about how he's adopted us into his family, how the sin problem that I had was not, I could not do, fix it myself. There's nothing that I could have done to fix my sin problem. And that's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for my sins. Our worship should be epic. Man, it should be unbelievable. We shouldn't come in thinking, well, I just don't feel like this song we sang too many times and I'm tired. Man, all that stuff gets pushed away. When we see who God is in Jesus Christ, how we've been redeemed from our sin and set free from sin, man, our worship should be epic. Man, it should be like nothing we've done before. Derek Lee Grand Slam in the seventh inning against the Sox, that holds nothing to the worship that I give to the Lord. And the thing is, it's not always that case. And I need to repent before God and ask God for help. Man, you may be sitting there this morning thinking, man, my, that's not been the case for me at all. That's never been the case for me. This morning, you can trust Jesus that his death was for you and you can be adopted into his family, given new life. And you can worship this way because now you've got something to worship that's eternal. It's not passing away. Okay. So not only do we see a response to, for us, a response to Jesus Christ and his steadfast love and faithfulness to his people, but we also see a declaration of praise in verse 5. This is what he says. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. There's a, there's a sense in which he sees, he catches a glimpse of the ever-expanding, ever-growing kingdom of God. Where he says, look, man, there's something that is happening in the kingdom of God that is growing, that is progressing, that is not standing still, that is not shrinking back. In Isaiah 9-7, it says, the increase of his government, meaning Jesus Christ, the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Jesus said in the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. There's an understanding that the kingdom of God is advancing and growing and progressing. Guys, that's why we plant churches. We didn't plant a church in Highland because we thought the commute to Lansing was too far because it saves on gas mileage. So we really want to be green. That's not why we planted a church. 
Because we believe that the kingdom of God is an expanding, growing, unstoppable kingdom that has implications for all of our lives and for our towns and for our families. And therefore, we plant churches because we believe this is the way in which we want to see the kingdom of God come to be seen on the earth. It's through the church. The church is the hope. It's the place where we come to meet Christ. And so that's why we plant churches. Not for convenience, because it's nice to be in a smaller group of people. It's because we believe that this, that was true for the psalmist, that was true for Isaiah, that was true for what Christ said, is true for us today. This is true today. Okay, let's look at verse 6. God's sovereignty revealed. And sovereignty is a, a, a big word that simply means God is in absolute, total control. God is in control. God is in control of all things. So God's sovereignty revealed. Now, verse 6, I believe, is a question to the is an answer to the question that he asks in verses 10 and 11. Let's read verse 6. That your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. So he's, what he's asking for is divine intervention. He's, when he begins to contemplate his enemies and the things that are happening around him in his kingdom, he's not asking for more troops. He's not asking for a better war room strategy. He's asking for God to show up, saying, God, please show up. You need to show up. Unless God, unless you initiate deliverance and redemption, we have no hope. God, you've got to initiate this whole thing. And I believe this is the answer to the question that he asks in verses 10 and 11. And we'll get there, but this is the answer that God initiates, that God takes charge, that God is the one who does these things. Not more troops or anything else. It's God alone. Now he, in verses 7 and 9, he changes now. So he looks at the answer to the question in verses 10 and 11. But then in verses 7 through 9 is this oracle of hope or a prophetic word that was given to the psalmist. We don't know where this prophetic word came from. We don't know who gave it. But we know that he says, God has promised in his holiness so this is the word of the Lord to him. He said, God has promised me something. This is God's promise to us. With exaltation, I will divide up Shechem, portion out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom, I cast my shoe. And over Philistia, I shout in triumph. So what does all that mean? <laughs> what does all these lands and stuff mean? What, what's this all about? I will say this before I go on. We get in the um, workbook, you'll get more into this. I don't have necessarily the time this morning to really dig too much into this. However, I do want to say this, that in this prophetic word, this word that is given by God, it, it basically, I'll sum it up by saying this. God is sovereign over Israel. He portions out the different regions that make up their inheritance to God's people. So God's sovereign not only over Israel, but then we see that God is also sovereign over the nations. So God is sovereign over Israel. He dispenses his 
the, the promised land to his people as he sees fit, as he pleases. God is, God is sovereign. God is in control. God is over the nations as well. They have no chance against God. There's not a nation that exists that will not bend its knee to the Lord, that will not declare that God Almighty is the Lord. He said, look, I am sovereign over all of these things. And so that's, that's the sum of what he's saying here. God is sovereign. God is in control. God is in control of our lives. God is in control of the nations. We've got nothing to worry about. God is in control. But then he moves from this prophetic word, this oracle of hope, to a question that he asks in verse 10 and 11. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go out, O God, with our armies. Look, I thought he just said that God was in control of the nations. Why now is he asking the question, God, where are you? Surely there's a prophetic word that has been given to his people. There's a promise of God's sovereignty over Israel and over the nations. And the psalmist says, however, what I'm looking around and what I'm seeing right now, God, you're nowhere to be found. God, I don't know why it is that you don't go out with this anymore. God, how, where, where, where'd you go? Have you abandoned us? Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? It's not man, it's God. He's saying, God, Lord, where are you? I need you in this time. What happened to the promise? I thought you were going to wipe out all the enemies. And now you're not with us any longer. Ever felt that way? Ever felt in a place where God has spoken to you about something or you read in God's word and you feel like God is directing you and it's like, God, I don't know. I thought that was what you said, but I don't see any of that today. God, I feel so, I feel so distant from you. I feel so empty. I feel like you no longer go out with me. I feel like you no longer are with me. I thought your word, your word surely says that you are with us. You are Emmanuel, God with us. Then why do I not feel near you? Is your word not true? Is this prophetic word that God gave to David and to the, to the nation, is that not true? God, is your word not true to me? Because I don't feel it right now. Philippians 1.6 says this, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And there's times I read that and think, then why is there so much sin in my life? Why am I still dealing with pride and laziness and selfishness? Why am I still dealing with these things? God, I thought your word says that you were doing a good work and you're bringing it along. And it's, 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 I'm being changed. And at the day of Christ Jesus, there's going to be this glorious time with you. And, but yet I just feel like so often I'm just, I'm walking. I don't know where you're at. Why is there no progress or times and seasons of my life where I feel like you're absent? I believe this is what he's looking at is the nature of faith. It's the nature of faith. We're going to get back to that in a second, but there's a nature of faith that we need to, we need to dig into. And I want to go back to Psalm 1 really quick. We don't have to turn there, but back in Psalm 1, 
If you remember, as we talked about Psalm 1, there's two paths before every person. There's the way of folly and the way of wisdom, the way of wickedness and the way of righteousness. There's two paths before, each, before all of us at all times. What path do we walk on? What path do we, do we experience the life that God has, has given to us and intended for us? It's in the way of wisdom. It's the way of righteousness. However, the way of folly for us can sometimes be doing one of two things. The way of folly would say, I'm going to sit back and do nothing and wait for God to do it all. Now, God can do it all. God, as we even looking at Philippians 1.6, he's going to do a good work. He doesn't need me to do a good work. God can do a good work all on his own. However, God somehow in his wisdom and in his mercy and grace has chosen to include us into his plans of redemption. And he works in us and through us and with us. So when I see he, he's begun a good work and he brings it to completion, that doesn't mean in my life I take my shoes off and just veg out at the TV all day long and say, God, do the good work. I'm going to fill myself with junk. I'm, going to not, I'm, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to sit back because you've promised this. Therefore, I'm off the hook. I don't have to do anything. Or we just give up when we don't see immediate results. That we've been, sometimes we've been waiting and waiting and waiting. And it's like, God, I've had enough. It's been too long. I'm done. I'm done. Some of you are there right now. Some of you are there right now. And I've been there before. And so often we want a microwave life or a microwave Christianity. We want the bag of microwave popcorn to put in the, put in the microwave, hit the popcorn button, and 30 seconds later, boom, we've got, we've got food, we've got popcorn. We put church in the microwave, hit the church button, boom, we've got church. People's lives change and transform. My life full of the Holy Spirit, you know, seeing miracles and crazy people being raised from the dead, and it's all good. Now, God could do that if he pleased. But often for us, if God began to do those things, I read about Solomon. Man, Solomon, the, the dude had everything he ever wanted. I mean, God blessed him with everything. Everything. He knew, man, God appeared to him twice in a dream. Man, he, when he dedicated that temple that he built, Man, the cloud came down. The glory of God filled the temple. People had to, had to run out of the place. I mean, it was crazy. You think, man, this, guy, this guy's experienced God. God blessed him and, and gave him all, the, all of God's promises came true in Solomon. However, at the end of his life, he turned away from God. I believe for us, this for us, this for us is a call to, to relationship with God. The, uh, faith is a call of relationship. It's not saying just believe and sit back and watch me. And God could do that and God does do that sometimes. But what I believe the walk in the way of faith, the life of faith means is abiding in God, abiding near to the Lord. It doesn't just give up when we don't see immediate results or even results. God's timetable is different from our timetable. We want things much faster. We want things right now. 
God's timetable is much different. I believe he's doing that. He's saying, walk with me, fellowship with me, be near to me. It's a call to relationship. It's a call to friendship. And this shows that faith is not just this one-dimensional, God said it, I believe it, life is good. It is, it is deep. It is robust. There's depth to it. Man, this faith thing is, is more than I can really fathom right now. It is a walk with the Lord. So what is faith? Faith, and he says this, faith in the promise. In verses 12 and 13, he says, Oh, grant us help against the foe. For vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. You know what? The nature of faith is that we believe God and we draw near to God even the most difficult circumstances. Doesn't mean we don't... Faith doesn't mean, we, God, you've promised something, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to withdraw and let you just go to work and do your own thing. Faith means God is inviting us back to relationship in the midst of our difficult circumstances. And this is what Psalmist is saying. Look, God, you've promised some amazing things. You've promised to be with us, but you're not. And I believe God's saying, that's because I want, I'm drawing you near to myself. If I just zapped your enemies, portioned out the land, sent you on your own, you'd forget about me, just like, just like Solomon did. It's an invitation to relationship. Because... And here's why. This is why. Because the nature of faith, but it, it also means this, that God is free. That somehow we don't control God by our faith. Well, if, we just, if David just had enough faith, then he'd, he'd see these things happen. Then Israel would be, Israel would be delivered. Then, the, then God's inheritance for God's people in the land would be distributed. If you just have enough faith, you can do those things. There's a whole strand of Christianity now that has got this whole faith thing going on where it's, well, if you believe enough, you won't get sick. You'll have good relationships. You'll get the raise, get the new house, get the car, all these things. Just have enough faith. But here's the thing. God is not controlled by our faith. God is free. God has his own timetable and does as he pleases. He's not chained or shackled by my faith. God does as he pleases. So although God has promised victory to his people, yet David is still asking God, why are you not with, why are you not with us? So faith keeps us near, near the Lord. I wrote this. Faith is an invitation to wait and seek the Lord for all that he has provided for us in Jesus. It's an invitation. It's back to this invitation. Back to Psalm 1 again. It's an invitation to friendship with the Lord. It's a way of wisdom. I want to just close, and we are going to uh, close in prayer, but I want to just ask us a couple of questions. What does my worship look like? What does your worship look like? When we consider the psalmist and him saying, this is an appropriate response to God. It's his epic worship. Am I even near this kind of worship? And if not, it is an opportunity for us to repent, by God's grace to repent, to seek mercy, 
and ask God to change our hearts. It's not going to come by us just, okay, I've just got to set my alarm earlier and I've got to do all these other things, although, although that may help. God needs to do a work in our hearts and change our hearts so that we begin to see Jesus more clearly, that would fuel our worship. We can't help but worship with all of our being. So maybe we need to repent. Maybe as you take stock in your own worship, it's lukewarm. We need God to light the fire in our heart. We need God to stir us up. We need God to to do something radical in us. We would not just sit still and sit back. Number two, what does our faith look like? Does it cause us to draw near or to give up? Does it cause us to draw near or give up? And this is this is a this is a question that we just need to, I believe, be continually asking the Lord. Because I think for for many of us, and I've been, I've been there. I've been there. I'm right there right now. There's things I'm like, God, I just I don't see anything happening. Why is that? Why is that? But I believe it's an invitation that God's saying, look, draw near to me. In my time, we're going to work some things out. But in the meantime, I want you. I want your heart. I want you to know me. Not just my promises. Not just my deliverance. I want you to know me. And so for us, it's an invitation to draw near to the Lord. So I believe for us, an appropriate response, number one, would be to consider the work of Jesus, the salvation we have in Christ. Allow that to fuel our worship. Then we need to repent. If we, if we see areas of our life that has not been this way, we need to repent before God and say, God, change my heart. I want to worship you appropriately. These aren't the only ways to worship God. There's many more ways, but God, I want to worship you. We start here. I want it to be epic. And number two, our faith. God, I need you to give me more faith. I need to dig into your word. Faith comes by hearing the word. God, I need more of you. I need you to do this, stir me, to work in me. And I would just say, if, if you're hearing this thing, you're like, man, I, I've never worshiped that way. I've never had faith like that. You know what? You may never have given your, you may never have trusted Christ for your salvation. And there's a decision to be made. It's not just an automatic. There's a decision that we make that God takes hold of us from eternity past. But there's a place that we say, God, I believe that for my life. And that's the place where God says, you are welcomed into the family, forgiven of your sins, given hope. So we're going to just make available to you after the service. Tim's going to come up and we're going to have a few announcements and prayer. But if you feel like after hearing the sermon, after the worship today, you feel like, man, I could just, I need prayer. I need to, I need to know God more this way. I need to experience God's power and presence in my life like this. I need to repent. You can come up. We'll pray for you. We'll, we'll just stand alongside you. Not because we're, we've got everything figured out because we'll stand next to you. Look, we're figuring, I'm figuring this out too. There's, I got to learn. I've got to walk this out too. I haven't got this whole thing figured out. By the grace of God, my life will be different. We'll experience the grace of God. But you know what? We need the Lord nonetheless. And so we'll be 
we'll be happy to pray for you. God, this, this morning we want to thank you for your goodness to us. And Lord, I pray that you would just open our eyes to see the glory and the majesty and the beauty of Jesus Christ and his work for us on the cross and the redemption we have in him. And Lord, I pray that that would fuel our worship. And God, I pray that you would give us more faith. Help us to walk in obedience to you. Let us not give up, not grow weary. But Lord, I pray that you would help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.